we live in societies we in Canada in 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 which we can assume that uh, the stuff that we have has been obtained legally and ethically and and, and fisheries we cannot make this assumption anymore <coughs> Hi, I'm Mark Laren Young, and this is Scanna, a podcast about orcas, oceans, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. I've interviewed thousands of people over the years, politicians, movie stars, rock stars, scientists, entrepreneurs, and all types of experts. But not many interviews rocked my world like the one I'm sharing today. Bob Hunter, a founder of Greenpeace, used to talk about mind bombs, ideas that, well, blew your mind. Daniel Polly, the author of the book Vanishing Fish, is an expert on fish and fisheries who drops a lot of mind bombs. His most famous mind bomb is the concept of shifting baselines and how humans accept whatever the norm is today as the new normal. Basically, it's accepting that if we can't find Chinook salmon now, there have never been Chinook salmon. Or if you're a 1984 fan, we have always been at war with Oceania. Now, Polly was talking about fish and fisheries, and we talked just before our world was turned upside down by a virus. But in 2020, the concept of shifting baselines has fascinating and horrifying implications regarding how our baselines shifted and are continuing to shift courtesy of COVID and America's Mad King. We also talked about Alexandra Morton's battles against fish farms in British Columbia, and Polly's stories from the front lines shocked me, and I do not shock easily. I am so thrilled to be sharing this interview with you. As always, Scan is brought to you by our pod at patreon.com, so if you like what we're up to, please join our pod and sponsor us at patreon.com. Even a dollar a month helps us share stories like this one. You can also visit our site, scanna.org, and make one-time donations to support us via Ko-fi. Or feel free to buy my books about orcas. Or my books that aren't about orcas. My book, Never Shoot a Stampede Queen, won Canada's Laycock Medal for Humor. Although it is 100% orca-free. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three new books about whales for younger readers. Orcas of the Sailor Sea, that's a really beautiful picture book. Big Whale, Small World, that's for babies. And Orcas Everywhere which just won the City of Victoria's Children's Book Prize. You can find out more about all the books, ebooks, and audio versions on orcaseverywhere.com or scanna.org, and they're all for sale wherever you buy your books, ebooks, and audiobooks. We're also doing a new podcast, Orca Bites, where we share words of wisdom from Scanna guests like Daniel Polly, David Suzuki, Alexander Morton, and more. And if you check out Orca Bites right now, we're inviting you to share your stories of the first time you saw a whale. And now, Daniel Polly on shifting baselines, shifty fisheries officials, and fighting for vanishing fish. This is Daniel Polly. Great to meet you, Daniel Polly. I'm Mark Larry Young. This is very cool. Okay. Where in the world uh, are you right now? Uh, I'm I'm in Hong Kong. I gather you. I, I don't live there. I I just uh, I'm on travel. The last I heard, you were in France, and then you were in Hong Kong. Where? What are you traveling for? What are you up to? Uh, I am uh, uh, I'm an advisor to uh, Hong Kong uh, Philanthropic Foundation. So uh, I came here for three days, and I'm going on now uh, to China, to mainland China, uh, uh, to uh, to teach a course, and then I will be back uh, to. No, then I will not be back. I then I will go to New Caledonia. Then I will be back. That's hilarious. That that's an amazing travel schedule. I was... yeah, I, I travel a lot. Fantastic. Can let's get you to explain shifting baselines 
because yeah. that that concept is kind of mind blowing, and I love that you created a concept that has become internationally recognized. So if you can talk people through that, that would be fantastic. Well, uh, shifting baseline is is uh, is the discovery which was done at the same time by several other people. Incidentally, I discovered uh, by uh, the discovery that uh, the criterion we use uh, to assess change uh, um, uh, is valid uh, personally we we but but not between generations so at the beginning of our life we we assess the world around us for example its biodiversity and in the course of our lives professional or otherwise we we noticed uh, a, a change and that is, serves us uh, as reference when we talk about all oh, things change, things get worse, for example, uh, the biodiversity around us, insects or, or fish or whatever. But uh, the experience of our parents or of our older colleagues is not considered therein. And so different generation experience declines, of, in the case of declines, and uh, they are not added up. The subjective decline, the, the decline that we uh, subjectively perceive, is accounted for. And so when we project backward how things were, we tend to project backward only how it was at the beginning of our lives, but we don't project what other people experience. So we accommodate ourselves of a change that we would not if it were if we realized the extent of the magnitude of that change. This is not better explained now than in a, in a short paper that I wrote about it, but the idea is very simple. And indeed, it is a very successful paper that I wrote there because it, it not only applies to changes in fisheries, that what I wrote it for, but changes in biodiversity, changes in cultural norms, uh, changing everywhere. And, and so that's the reason why it gets thousands of, of citation and and it has entered the, the normal daily language, actually. Yeah, when I heard about it, I saw it in relation to, I'd always seen it in relation to the fish population, but I don't, it really does relate to pretty much everything where we go. It does. Yeah, it does. So can you talk about sort of taking that global perspective? Uh, because that's, your perspective is really, I mean, in terms of shifting things, you've shifted the idea of looking locally to looking globally when we're, when we're looking at fish. Yeah. Basically, the donors for research, the people who fund research, governments, they usually want you to study one site and one process. For example, in Canada, most research that we do uh, in my institute is in the Georgia Strait and along the west coast of Canada. You would hardly get except in big projects, get funding for research that, that covers the whole world. But I have made this my speciality because I, I want to, all my life, to help out in developing countries. And basically, by working globally, I, I make it possible to have an equal coverage of, uh, of developing countries and developed countries. That's one reason. But the, the main reason why we need to study uh, fisheries globally is because studying them uh, at a local level doesn't capture the dynamics. You know that people say, all oh, the fish move, they don't know borders. Actually, they do. Borders of temperatures, borders of depth. Fish actually do know borders. They don't wander every, anywhere. But fishing fleets don't know borders. They, they go everywhere, legally or illegally. And uh, nowadays, uh, our boats can go anywhere in the world, distance-wise, depth-wise. They can fish under the ice. They can fish at extremely great depth and so on. So basically, you have a situation that the, the market and the fleets are integrated, what is happening, into one system, what is happening on, in the world as a whole. Uh, that is about like the weather. You would not expect to understand the weather by studying the situation of the temperature and the, the rain and so on 
in in the lower mainland of Canada, for for example, the lower mainland of British Columbia, uh, we are part of a global system, and by knowing that global system, we can predict what will happen five six days ahead, weather-wise. And basically, fisheries have to be understood as a global system, because, for example, Canada gets fish from international market and supplies fish to global markets. This is not anymore a Canadian affair uh, only. And so by looking at global fisheries, you understand better what happens to local fisheries. Well, I mean, it almost feels like there's an incentive for each country to turn a blind eye to all the additional fishing and to go, well, we're only taking this many fish so we so that, say, Canada doesn't have to cut a take because we're not really acknowledging the global fisheries or we're not really acknowledging which fish are being taken from elsewhere. I, I, you, you mentioned that like Inuit fishing wasn't even factored into numbers at one point, or I don't know if that's still the case. The rich countries, the, uh, the rich market, Europe, North America, Canada and the US, Japan, and increasingly China and so on, uh, cannot supply them, themselves anymore with the fish that they catch uh, locally. So they export the demand in the form of purchases or in the form of fleets that, that go catch fish. Spain or, or China exports their fleet, not only their demand. And basically, the rest of the world is expected to supply them with the fish they think they need. So the, the fish consumption has increased. Globally, it is now 20 kilo per, per person per year uh, of fish. And it was just a few decades ago, half of that. And it, it is mainly in the developed world that uh, fish have become popular. They, they are supposed to be healthy and so on. So people who were not fish eaters have become fish eaters. For example, in, a, in the U.S. Midwest, they have... They are eating more fish than ever before, uh, and but the demand, uh, this demand exceeds uh, the productive capacity of the waters that uh, around the U.S. So, out goes the demand, in come the fish, and basically, this has become a zero-sum game in in the, in so far as in the other countries do not have that fish anymore because. Remember, we don't produce the fish, we just collect it. And we just collect the fish that nature produces. So we cannot make fish that we need. We have to take it from somebody else's. And because there is a limitation on to how much the fish they can be. And, and so the fish is not available anymore at local markets in the developing world. And it is uh, particularly strong in West Africa where the European demand and the Chinese demand have uh, put so much pressure on local fishing stocks, or, because West Africa is very productive in fisheries, that uh, fish is not available for uh, the people to eat. Even low-quality fish, cheaper fish, is not available, because it turned into fish meal, which is then used to produce, in aquaculture, bigger fish that we prefer. How do we get that across? How do you... How do you try and get that across to people around the world that we're actually taking food from other people? Because I don't think that's not something I've, I've heard very often. Uh, yeah. I think in terms of what we're doing in Africa, I think that's the first time I've heard it. it, and it I'm is, tuned into it this is stuff. Very, very difficult to convey. And when I, when I lecture, uh, when I give a lecture and uh, somebody says, what fish should we eat and how should we organize? I ask always, who is we? Is it you and your friend? Is it you and, and your school friends? Is it you uh, and your compatriot in your country? Or is it we as a human species on Earth? Because how we determine or we are determines uh, the answer. If we is, is Canadians, we just continue what we do. That's fine. We have overfished our resources around Canada. They are. And... Uh, then we buy the fish that comes from international market, and that's that's it. We are looking fine. We are we're fine. But if if we is humanity, that doesn't work because humanity is having less and less fish now, because the catch of the world is declining. And what we're doing now as a remedial measure is actually 
because this catch is declining and the fish that we catch are getting smaller is in the developing world, in the developed world, sorry, is turning this, this small fish into bigger fish through aquaculture, to a form of aquaculture, uh, typically salmon, right? We turn little fish into, into big fish in, by turning the small fish into, into fish meal and we give them to salmon to eat. And then, then we have this big fish, this salmon, available for richer markets and poor people don't have the small fish. And that is a pattern that is increasingly the case, increasingly happening. And some of it you can see, you can see in, in West African fishers showing up as immigrants uh, on boats in, in the, Med, uh, the Mediterranean and, and, and wanting to enter Europe uh, illegally or legally uh, to work because there is no more work as fisher. They cannot work as fisher. That is happening on a, on a, on a rather grand scale. And, and we, if we connected the dots between this illegal migration and this death and this, this smuggling of people with uh, the fishing uh, uh, that uh, the fishing fleet that has sent to West Africa, if we connected the dot, we wouldn't be doing that. I feel like instead of connecting the dots, the governments in countries like Canada and the U.S. would rather hide those dots. I am, you're probably right. I, I think also it's in part not fair for the consumers to be confronted with this problem because if we, we don't expect uh, consumers to deal with such problem on, on when they buy veg vegetable or when they buy uh, uh, the stuff you need for your daily life and, and uh, even when you buy a TV, you, you don't have to think, is, what, was this, did it fall off a truck? Was it stolen? Uh, basically, we, we live in societies, we in Canada, in, in, in which we can assume that uh, the stuff that we have has been obtained legally and ethically. And, and, and fisheries, we cannot make this assumption anymore. And, and, uh, and so people are more concerned with fish than with, with meat, then with vegetable, with other things, and with clothes and stuff. But it turns out that much of our supply chains are actually polluted. We know that for textile also. Slave, semi-slave labor is employed, underpaid people, and so on. So there is, uh, our supply chain have, have problems, and fishery, fishery supply chain are probably the worst. Well, I think for most people what, they do is they look at a menu and they see if somebody else has approved it. So you sort of want that stamp of approval, you know, in BC, it's, is it ocean wise? And if it's ocean wise, you go, okay, I can eat this. That's exactly right. And, and, and it, it gives you a good feeling and I'm not going to knock it down because, because it's, it's better to think about such things and not to do than not to think about it. But basically it allows you for, it allows for, displaying your virtue virtue displaying right uh, you 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 are a good good person because you you consider such things and and the the social pressure it exerts uh tends to be horizontal that is you you pressure your friend to eat this fish and not that fish the this uh, is relatively ineffective actually uh what is effective is vertical pressure pressure that goes directly to the suppliers. For example, people distributing leaf, leaflet in front of a, of a shop or of a warehouse will, will have a, a stronger impact than people arguing they should take the tuna sushi. And basically, public shaming of companies that sell illegal, illegally procured fish, for example, public shaming works much better than the guilt-ridden consumption that is encouraged by, by this uh, virtue display. Well, I'm just thinking in my lifetime that vegetarian used to be, like people who were pescatarians considered themselves vegetarians because, hey, they weren't eating meat. So fish yeah. was really seen as a separate part of the food chain, yeah. really yeah. separated that, out. That, that is a, another problem that uh, fish were, were viewed as uh, package of healthy meat and not wild animals uh, 
and uh, capable of feeling, capable of, of uh, agency. And uh, this is, uh, in science, uh, uh, people are now discovering that uh, the, the well-being of, 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 of fish can be expressed. They don't have a face really that they can smile or anything. But uh, you can actually assess the well-being of fish, and and you can you can you would notice that uh, uh, farming system are not uh, not made for the well for the for the well-being of the animal any more than uh, they are for chicken and, and and mammals and and basically the realization they feel pain. And and they prefer the companionship of other fish and so on. This this is all. It is a good reason to become vegetarian if you if you do that, or perhaps uh, to consume the the artificial meat that uh, I hope will soon arrive on the market in acceptable version. Because because we have to be weaned of this of this meat eating. I remember being taken out on fishing trips when I was a kid and thinking that putting a hook through a fish's mouth was like the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life. Well, and, and, every, and all the adults said, don't worry, they don't feel pain. And, the, and it is a, a, an interesting myth. You, you, you had, act as, a, as a child, the proper reaction because, because obviously pain, pain is, is a, a biological mechanism that prevents you from doing stupid things and fish could also do, do stupid things they didn't feel pain and but uh, n uh, the 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 cells that feel pain in in mammals and in in other in birds and so on are called nociceptors receptors for pain and uh, fish uh, bony fish the the one we fish uh, on a trip like this they have they have nociceptors. They have receptors for pain. Now, what kind of what kind of biology do people have that fish would have nociceptors that they don't use? The, this is not doesn't make any sense. So, the, there is a debate uh, in uh, in the literature, in the scientific literature, about whether fish have nociceptors, whether they use the nociceptors that they have. But this is uh, this is a stupid debate because we don't have organs uh, that, except if they are residual organ uh, organs that that uh, our ancestors used but didn't use it. We don't use anymore. Nos fish do not have nociceptor for nothing, and and the argument uh, that they make is they may have the nociceptors, but they don't have the brain to process it. And uh, again. You would not evolve an organ or a cell if you're not going to use it. So it, it is a stupid argument. And usually, when you see, when you read the acknowledgement section of the paper that say the, the fish don't feel pain, you find these are people that are paid by the angler industry or the, the recreational fishing industry. There was a great term I read by Franz Deval, anthropodenial. Uh, that I yeah. fell in love with the idea that it's the opposite of anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism that we're trying to pretend that animals don't feel pain. We're trying to pretend they don't have emotions because it's really inconvenient if they do. Yes, actually, the the models of animals that came from from the Enlightenment that they are machines, Voltaire and so on, have proposed that they they act and they behave like machines which lasted until the 60s, 70s in the form of behaviorism. The animals are just bag of reflexes uh, with no in internal life. was dreadfully wrong, and, and this was bad biology. And obviously, obviously, if we have feelings and an, interior, an internal life and uh, we, we reflect on things and we have emotion and everything, they must come from somewhere, and and basically they come. Human human emotion and human abilities are all extreme version of of version of of uh, forms of this of this 
feelings or emotion in animals as well, because we have evolved from animals. We are we are apes that have uh, that have evolved language and so on. And so the the notion that we have things that of which there is no analog in the animal kingdom is is completely crazy. This is not the case for our stomach. This is not the case for our teeth. This is not the case for our hair. But all of a sudden, it it should be different for our emotion. Our emotion. This is stupid because our emotion are also biological. Now, I don't come from a science background, so when I first started asking these questions, when I was I was learning about orcas, I wanted somebody to explain to me why orcas didn't have rights, and all of the explanations were pretty weak. They were along the lines of what you're saying. And I kept going, no, no, give, give me the scientific reason, because I just assumed there was one. And I, I don't understand why researchers and scientists are still hanging on to this. What's, what's the reluctance to let go when the science keeps disproving it? Basically, I think that scientists are just people, right, with, with certain skill. And, and, and the consequences of some of the discoveries that we make are horrible. And just like physicists develop nuclear bomb and and they have maybe some of them feel bad about it, we are discovering, we have discovered through the discovery that we are animal that have evolved from other animals, we are discovering that we are deeply connected with them. That uh, our dog, when it seems to be happy because because we come back home, really are happy. They 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 express happiness. It's not a reflex uh, that that makes the, the tail wag or something like that. And and the implication of our treatment of animals, whales, for example, the mass slaughtering that we have done of whales, is is too horrible to contemplate. And so we have coping mechanism, and denial is one of them. Uh, it's quite obvious that for the science enterprise, denial is best. Because at the practical level, for example, there are certain experiments that you cannot do the way you do them, we did them before, where you investigate the ability for tissues to heal by shooting into dogs, for example. That is done at army research centers all the time. And when this stuff comes out, people are horrified. So you have to work differently. And people are don't like it. I mean, the protocols for animal research nowadays in my university are incredibly complex. They, again, shifting baseline, I, I remember when I was younger, they were, you just took the animal and did whatever you wanted. And, and there are experiments that you cannot do anymore. Chimps uh, are retired from research. Uh, you cannot use chimp for, for human research. And primates altogether, m- monkeys either. And, and mice, it's very much regulated how you can use mice. And basically, people want you to use tissues instead of of animals. You cannot use rabbits to check if uh, stuff that you put on your face is itching or not. There was something that uh, was in your book about people worrying about whales eating our fish as a way of managing the fisheries. And that came up when I started researching Moby Doll and how we used to treat whales and orcas prior to the 60s, that the killer whales were eating our fish and therefore Canadians were just shooting them. Yep. So can you talk about how that's happening in other countries in the world? Basically, this was a, a belief in numerous culture that whales eat, eat our fish. And to the extent that we developed a powerful fleet and caught all the fish there is, uh, they were perceived then as competitors. But uh, now we know better. We know better. We know better our ecosystem, how ecosystem work. And in the West, there was a, there was a cultural revolution about uh, the the relationship to mar- to marine mammals, and they are perceived as our friends. And and a few countries did not in the West get that uh, that in Iceland, in Norway, and in Russia. This cultural revolution, which was driven by films mainly, uh, did not occur. In Japan, in Japan, we have another culture that did not get that. And 
in Japan is not a whaling nation from many years ago, the, uh, or million, centuries of, of whaling. This is a, a huge lie. The, Japan was whaling massively after World War II when they had nothing to eat. The Americans allowed the Japanese fleet to rebuild the occupation army, uh, and, and Japan went uh, in the North Pacific. And there was a generation of Japanese uh, people who grew up right after World War II, who grew up on whale meat. And that is true. And these old folks, they, they perceive that as traditional, but that shifting baseline again, the, generation, the earlier generation of Japanese did not eat whale meat massively. And Japan used the whale story with you, the, the, to keep access to international waters, to keep access even to the waters of other countries, because Japan is a big fishing nation. So the, there is a political element in, in Japanese uh, uh, insisting on, on whale, uh, on whale whaling everywhere. And when they project the the, the argumentation on on West Africa, for example, becomes a bit ridiculous because in West Africa, uh, in Senegal and so on, the the whales that they have there do not do not eat because they come for reproduction only, and during the reproduction period they don't eat, and and the it it is particularly obnoxious to see uh, uh, Japanese. Uh, uh, influence politician in West Africa say the, the whales eat our fish, given that they don't even eat at all when they are of West Africa. And in that book, I mentioned the mayor of a city, the, of a fishing city. She was saying that not only do the people know that they don't eat the whales, but they actually cannot eat them because they are Muslims and uh, they, they are not... Uh, allowed to eat. They, they cannot be eaten. And they have a perception of whale as the guardians of the fish, the benevolent guardians of the fish that they catch. And and so for them, the notion of fish, of, of whaling is totally repugnant. And this woman, this mayor of a, of a fishing town, discovered at the meeting that her country was voting with with Japan at the International Whaling Commission, and was horrified. It was a di discussion that had not taken place in the country because because the country was participating on the side of Japan in the International Whaling Commission without telling it, the citizen about it because it was a few officials that had been bribed. And this has happened all, all over West Africa and in the Caribbean as well. So a few countries follow Japan in the International Whaling Commission, but through officials that have been bribed, but they don't talk about this in, in, uh, in, to their constituents, because actually their constituents are against it. There was a fantastic term in your book, uh, I don't know if it's yours, a quackalypse. <laughs> I was yes. just thinking, can you explain a quackalypse? What happens is I, I wrote a piece for uh, what actually is a political magazine is uh, the new republic, and uh, uh, they they made up the title, uh, and it is uh, a combination of aquatic and apocalypse, uh, aquapocalypse, and uh, people think uh, me very witty to have uh, concocted that, but they actually did, I didn't. Uh, uh, and some people criticize me for this title because it's it doom and gloom, and uh, also I do not defend myself by saying. It's not my title, but actually it's not. I, it, was, it was chosen by, uh, by uh, the editor of that, of that uh, magazine. Mind you, this is a, a normal practice. I don't know if you have experienced it, but uh, you, the title, or as a journalist, the title uh, of uh, articles are not selected by the journalist, but by the editor. And... Uh, this is a tradition in, in, in publishing, and uh, we, we don't have that in science. We choose the title of the article, but it was an article in a, in a non-scientific journal, so 
So I got what I deserved. That's funny. No, I come from the land of journalism, and I get, I've told people I've got more trouble for headlines than for my articles, and I don't write the headlines. The headlines just yeah. show up. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. I've been reading the interviews, like the interview you did with Charlie Smith and the Georgia Strait, and looking at some of that. Can you talk a little bit about how the differences between how Canada and the U.S. are managed? Because it sounds like you're really not impressed with what we're doing in Canada right now, and I'd like a sense of why. Yeah, but basically, basically there is a level of uh, that stock can be maintained at uh, that fish population can be maintained at, that maintains them productive and abundant, both at the same time, productive and abundant. And if you reduce the stock to lower biomass than that, uh, they become less abundant and less productive. So if you should build up this, uh, build up your stock if they have been overfished back to that level. It's called the level that produce maximum sustainable yield. So the biomass should be at the level that produce MSY. So if you let the fishery unmanaged, it will always be fished down to a level much much lower than this MSY. And because actually individual fishers do not care about max, maximum sustainable yield for society, because they care about the yield, the captures that they make personally. So basically, a fishery that is unregulated will, and that's not contested by anybody, will will be overfished. So basically, the task of the managers is to maintain the stock at a level that uh, is not, doesn't go beyond that uh, MSY level. And if it is at a lower level, is to rebuild the stock. So how do you do that? In the U.S., they have a, an act uh, of, of Congress. It's called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which as soon as a stock is detected to be under that magical level, it has to be rebuilt within 10 years. So the quota that is given to the, to the fishers uh, that are exploiting the stock are so low enough for the stock to naturally rebuild within 10 years to this MSI, MSY level. And that is the best legislation that you can have, and it has succeeded in maintaining U.S. stocks at an acceptable level. And U.S. fisheries are not a disaster. But in practically every other country of the world, other country, this, this automatic rebuilding is not taking place. So in Canada, we, first of all, we don't have management plan for most stocks that are exploited. It, it is exploited, and, uh, but there is not a management plan. What are we going to do? Second, there is no mandatory build, rebuilding. The, the rebuilding uh, is not mandatory. They, there is no obligation to rebuild the stocks. And further, we have ministerial discretion. That means the Minister of Fisheries can intervene anytime and decide how much should be caught from that stock. And that ministerial discretion is then politicized because if the Minister of Fisheries comes from a province that decides we we should be fishing a lot and uh, the constituent say we should be fishing a lot, then there will be lots of fishing. It is the same thing in Europe. In principle, they have to rebuild the stocks, but it doesn't happen because we have ministerial discretion. They, they can, the minister can always intervene and on, in the name of his or her constituents uh, prevent small quota from being issued. They issue instead big quota and the stock doesn't rebuild. This is a situation that is intolerable. It's, it's happening everywhere, but the example of the U.S. in that case shows that there is a better way to go about it. Well, that also feels like it provides political cover because I'm watching what we're hap- what's happening with the Chinook right now in B.C. And I feel like the orcas are being blamed for 
you know, limiting Chinook fishing. I'm going, the Chinook are freaking endangered. We've got no business fishing them at all if they're qualifying as endangered. But instead of stopping the fisheries or limiting the herring fisheries, the political statement is, well, we've got to save some for the whales. So yeah. it's it's like they're hiding behind the whales instead of saying, you know what, we've overfished the Chinook for generations, and now yeah. it's time to let them come back. Yes, I'm afraid it is as simple as that. This this damn ministerial discretion, the analogy would be that the Minister of Justice intervenes regularly in, in trials. This is an absurd thing. The Minister of Justice makes sure that laws are, exist that are appropriate and lets the judge decide what should happen in a specific trial. And the Minister of Fisheries should um, make sure that regulation exists to manage fisheries, but she or he should not intervene in, uh, in a specific uh, situation uh, unless there is an emergency. And the rebuilding of stocks should be halfway automatic. But in Canada, we have the situation, not only rebuilding stocks is not automatic, but uh, if a species is endangered, as are many exploited fish, uh, and it is put protected by the by uh, the species at risk legislation the dfo has declared all exploited species all fish species to be taken away from the species at risk protection so maybe it applies to caribous it applies to animals on land to bears or whatever but fish are all not protected none of them uh, by by the species at risk legislation it is insane because again Fish are seen as, as, as a commodity rather than animals that that have agency, that 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 have population that that can go extinct. What can we do to change that? Do you see anything that would move the political dial on that? Because it appalls me that species at risk wouldn't apply to chinook or wouldn't apply to other fish. The question is, what we can we do about that? This question is what has led to uh, many years ago to Greenpeace being founded in in uh, in Canada for to to deal with the whale issue and and basically it it in it, it, it this question what should we do uh, is what uh, young people who start uh, protesting who start organizing against. Uh, something that is unacceptable and is not tackled by the by the government to start movements that uh, that question what happens and and basically uh, uh, the solution is not certainly to decide to become to 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 eat right uh, there is a tendency for young people to to decide to to choose to eat right the right fish and then to stop there, uh, rather than say, okay, I'm going to eat the right fish because I, I, I shouldn't eat the wrong fish. But the next step is getting organized and getting getting organized with people and be politically active. Because at the end of the day, if if the stuff that we do, is the activity that we do, are not picked up, are not directed at government and picked up by governments, uh, they, they will never become become effective for the population as a whole. So one has to direct one's activities at government. Uh, that is, uh, deal with our representatives in the parliament, deal with the demands addressed at, at the minister, and so on. You wrote about Alexander Morton and her battle with the fish farms. Can you talk a little bit about what you, what you saw there? I have worked on aquaculture in the tropics, um, and I know that aquaculture is not uh, is not only raising salmon; it's also raising herbivores, fish, and so on. And in uh, I studied in Europe, and uh, aquaculture uh, of salmon in Europe is much older than aquaculture of uh, of salmon or farming salmon in in Canada. And so I knew that uh, long of long ago that the uh, salmon in in Norway uh, have a lice problem, have a, a problem with parasites, 
I knew that uh, when I came to Canada in 94 for the first time. And basically, I was flabbergasted when I discovered that uh, they were denying that they had parasites in the farm because this was European, uh, this was uh, European salmon that they were farming, and 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 it has it's known that it that it has lice and and that it collects lice and that they pile up in 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 farming, and and yet there was this this denial of of gravity or this denial of something that was obvious that was and and basically it was it was uh, using the fact that uh, the aquaculture industry was new in 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 bc and and that people didn't know about it and and also i was flabbergasted at the attacks on on alexander morton uh, that were virulent and hard and 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 so i decided to go see her uh, uh, with my wife and a, a guy, uh, a parasitologist, actually, I went to with Ale- to Alexandra and uh, took a plane to north of Vancouver Island and water taxi, and then we went right away. I, I meet her, hello, and and then we went right away in a little boat, and we went fishing along the coast, which was. Uh, of a house in front of a house, and this was in front of a big farm on the other side of the of a, of the channel, and uh, the fish, the baby fish, about fingerling, the length of your finger, they all had big uh, big lice sitting on them, and they they had exactly the the size of of a plate for on human. So if you you have a, a a dining plate on your chest. That's about the size that these parasites were on this little fish. And all the little fish we caught, about 100 of them, mainly young salmon, had a parasite, all of them. And and uh, this was, so it was easy to catch them. They were all parasitized. And uh, then uh, I went, uh, we spent the weekend in the house and uh, uh, we saw her identify the salmon, the parasites, and so on. And then I went back, back to Vancouver, and uh, a few days later, I went to an event sponsored by DFO, and there was the head of research at uh, Nanaimo, the Pacific Research Station. She was saying that Alexander Morton, in public, she was saying in public that Alexander Morton was spiking the fish meaning that she got parasites, I guess from a, a, a biological supply firm, and would attach them herself to, to the fish and then pretend that they were parasitized. And this accusation was made in public by an official of the Canadian government. And I thought it was so horrible, so such a stinking lie, because she had a, a, a very high position uh, as a... She was the head of research, and obviously, when when there is a, such a lie is is presented to you by your boss, as a young scientist working for DFO, you know that you better watch out. And indeed, the the campaign against Alexander Morton was horrible. Uh, there was some Patrick Moore and other fellow uh, was were writing in the Vancouver Sun character assassination one after the other. And I, I thought it was horrible. And it was particularly horrible for me because I knew that the Norwegian knew that they had parasites. And they were even they had even invented a system where they had little wrasses, little fish picking the parasite off the of the fish. And I knew people who were working on that. They were picking off the parasites of the of the salmon in the farms. The the Norwegian were had research project to deal with the parasite problem. Well, the same company in British Columbia was denying that aquaculture has a, a parasite problem. And I knew that because I, I had been in Norway and I had been in aquaculture farms before. And so even though I've not worked on, on aquaculture in, in BC, 
I, I knew there was a horrible lie going on. And basically, uh, I, I invested myself in, in the defense of Alexandra. Uh, and I wrote a paper uh, with a, together with a professor at, at uh, SFU in uh, Georgia Strait and so on. And I was at several meetings where, where I criticized the DFO for, for the lies that they were spreading. And, and even they, they went with the Ricker, the big, a big research vessel that they had uh, in, near the farm, that, uh, near the place that uh, Alexandra was working. And, and they sampled the fish that they could catch. And they, they could catch nothing. Uh, no parasite, no 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 fish, but uh, the the point that they were with with the ricker, you cannot go inshore, and they that's where the parasites are, and and so you don't go with a monster boat, uh, uh, fish for parasites. The, basically, having having seen these parasites, having seen the 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 high the hundred percent rate of infestation of young fish, and then. And then listening and, and listening to a, 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 a head of research saying that Alexander spiked the fish, well, it makes your boy, your blood boil. This is this is too much. Uh, this is a, this is supposed to be a scientist in God's name, not not a lying, not lying like that. Do you get any sense of why the DFO would do that? Because I think that the DFO has a a twofold mission that uh, should never be imposed on on an agency. They, they they have to both promote and control the aquaculture aquaculture, and that you can't do both. Uh, basically, if they are to promote and to help aquaculture develop, that is a legitimate mission, and the agency that is in charge of ensuring that uh, healthy conditions prevail. Uh, should be like something like environmental protection agency. This cannot be in the same, in the same, in the same uh, agency. Uh, and and you don't basically, if people have to promote something, it, it's like the if the policeman had uh, the job of making sure people don't speed, but at the same time they would work for Maserati on the side. Uh, you know they, they would have a problem or Ferrari on the side. They, you cannot have a, a mission that uh, requires you to do two contra contradictory things. That's the reason also why I, I don't believe that corporation can do good by themselves because uh, they they have a mission which is to maximize uh, benefit for for the for the shareholders. And that, again, that is legitimate, but uh, it has to be done under constraint, and the constraint has to come from somewhere else. They cannot themselves determine what the constraint should be. And in aquaculture industry, uh, because uh, British Columbians didn't know about aquaculture, uh, to a large extent, they were self-regulated, and self-regulation means no regulation. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Can you just talk through fish base? Because I, I feel I'd be remiss in not asking you about it. There was a great explanation you gave where you described it almost in Star Trek terms in the New York Times. And I quite yeah. love that. Fish base was created because in the, in the 80s, when I worked, uh, well, I started working in the tropics in, in the early 70s, but uh, people didn't have information because they didn't have books, they didn't have scientific journals and badly equipped. They didn't have any money to send stamps uh, uh, on postcards to ask uh, for reprints or or to ask for for stuff. So basically, uh, at the time, basically what was being produced is bibliographies that tell, told you, oh, this is available and this is available under that name and in this, this library. But people could not even, uh, photocopying was expensive, remember? And and people could not do that. Uh, this, all these things were, were problematic. And so when the computer revolution came up and we 
we had the idea that instead of putting the reference to a paper, is to put the content of a paper on on diskettes, uh, on 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 digitized, that, such that people can access it through this uh, microcomputer. That's that's how we call them first, en masse, in in, in large amount. So Fishbase was, you don't make knowledge about the metadata, you don't make available that knowledge is available, but you make knowledge itself available. And basically, if you look at scientific papers about the growth of animals or what they eat and so on, there's lots of stuff around the data themselves. You, The data actually are quite a, a small part. The, the stuff is about how you collected the data and so on. So basically, we established protocols that uh, that uh, describe the data and uh, you transfer them from the papers into this protocol, into the tables, and, and then you have the content of the paper, the part that is important. And the idea was, if we do that for all important fish, then people have the data that they need to manage the fisheries. Uh, and then I, I talked with a, a colleague, a German colleague called Rainer Froese about it. And he said, let's do that. We, we do this, but for all fish, not only for the commercially exploited fish. And at the time, it was perceived that there were about 20,000 species of fish. And uh, so we engaged people in the Philippines to encode the data, four or five people. We got a grant from the Open Union and four or five people were hired to encode the data. And, and the thing was very successful. And uh, they produ we produced diskettes, then we produced a, a, a CD-ROM, then we produced a DVD. Uh, each of these things become bigger. And the internet, when the internet came up, we made it available on the internet. And in the meantime, uh, there were not 20,000 species, but 33 or 35,000. And and people discovered all kinds of uses for what was then known as fish base, uses that we had not anticipated. Uses, and our, actually our main users were intended to be in developing countries because they less information, turned out to be in the U.S., uh, turned, turned out to be U.S. school children that have to, to write term papers. That's fine with us. Uh, and now we have uh, half a million users every every month, uh, half a million different users, and we get 50 million hits, that is wow. page views uh, a month. And uh, where we have uh, an organization called the Fish Based Consortium that involves 11 or 12 uh, universities and museums in the world, ranging from Europe to China to Brazil. And and uh, we meet every year. Uh, we will meet in September in Australia. Uh, and we coordinate what gets into the database and and so on, and how it should look and so on. This is uh, probably the most successful thing I ever did. And uh, it, it, is enormously, it is enormously useful. And uh, basically, you go from one uh, country to the other, and uh, anybody who works on fish in universities, in schools, and so on, knows fish base. Thank you so much. And I just, I, I wouldn't normally ask this, but your biography just came out, and your childhood sounds like something out of Harry Potter with the Dursleys putting you under the stairs. Can you please tell me just a little bit about that so that I, well, I can sell a few copies of your biography for you? Um, uh, I, I was born in Paris of a French mother and an African-American soldier passing by. And I, my mother had, uh, had been thrown out of home, of her home because of that, um, um, because I was visibly a black person and, and, uh, she was thrown out of home. So she had problems with me, uh, being unhealthy and being, she was working and stuff. And uh, she met a, a Swiss family 
uh, that offered to take me for a few months because I was sick. And, and this family took me to Switzerland and never gave me back. And, and they mistreated me. Uh, let's put it like this. Uh, they mistreated me uh, within, within uh, one year or two. Uh, basically, I grew up as a, as a house domestic. And uh, I escaped from that when I was 16 and went to Germany. And basically, my biography mentions this and, and uh, the work that I had to do to extricate myself from that, um, which is uh, I had to go, I worked as, a, as an unskilled worker in a factory. And uh, at night, I went to school from nine to five and finished high school in Germany. So I had to switch language, uh, speak to learn German. I got out of this mess I was in, and uh, then I studied um, real fast, and I was very successful. Then I, I worked in developing countries, and, and uh, first in Indonesia, then, then in the Philippines, and then I came to Canada. And basically, each step is instructive because uh, the child that I was had to resist this, uh, the pathologies of the Swiss family. This was not your average Swiss, Swiss family. This was more Charles Dickens' mess. Um, and uh, basically, they were, they were pathologies at, the, every, uh, at various levels. And, 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 and it was difficult to, to extricate myself from that mess and to turn into, into a scientist. And, and then and I was uh, very successful as a scientist. Uh, I initiated, uh, for example, fish base and, and other initiatives that uh, were much appreciated. So I ended up uh, being uh, widely cited uh, fisheries scientist, uh, probably the most in the world. And, uh, and, and that is the story that you can tell because I was also a visible minority in all my life. <laughs> so, uh, uh, there is, uh, it's, it's an, it has a certain appeal if you want to read the story. So my biography has been written in, uh, in French by a colleague, actually, a French colleague, and uh, it's now being translated and it will be available next year, I guess, in English. Thank you so much for your time and, and thank you for everything that you do. This has uh, been a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much right. as well. Have fun, have fun in your travels. Bye. Yep. Thanks again for checking out Scanna during these surreal times. Scanna is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you like the podcast and want to help us share more stories about orcas, oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. If the podcast doesn't work for you, I'm Michelle Obama. Seriously, Michelle Obama has a podcast? Sponsors this episode include Darren Laren Young, Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Simon McNair, Joan Watterson, Solomon Siegel, and Yosef Lask. Please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter so you don't miss upcoming episodes with guests like Isabel Grock on sea otters, Linda Richards on elephant seals, and world-famous primatologist Franz DeWall on Anthropodenial and Mama's Last Hug. Also, check out our show notes on Scanna.org and our Scanna magazine on Medium. Follow us on social media and share the show with your friends. Heck, share it with anyone you've ever met. Five-star reviews on your favorite podcast provider are beyond appreciated. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rainbow our epic associate producer and audio engineer, Isabella Almashi, and thanks to web wizard Katie Brown and social media whiz Liz Flick Bellis. We've all said all sorts of help behind the scenes lately from Maeve Milligan and Brian Murphy. Scanna's theme song, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. And now, since this is an episode about Great Big Seas, we wanted to end off with a song by Great Big Sea. This is Eyes the Bye. Eyes the Bye. 
nice to buy the pills, the boat, and nice to buy the sails, her, and nice to buy the catches the fish and brings them home to Liza. If your partner's Sally G. Bo, if your partner's Sally Brown, for the twilling importance harbor all around the circle. Salts and rinds to cover your flake, cake and tea for supper, cod fishing in the spring of the year, fried in maggoty butter. If your partner's Sally G. Bo, if your partner's Sally Brown, for the twilling importance harbor all around the circle. I don't want your maggoty fish, they're no good for winter. Well, I can buy as good as that way down in Bonavista. Hip your partner Sally Tebo, hip your partner Sally Brown, Fogel's willing to Morton's Harbor all around the circle. I took Liza to a dance as fast as she could travel, and every step that she could take was up to her knees and gravel. She's out of sight, her petticoat wants to border And well, lonesome I love her in the dark He kissed her in the corner Hip your partner Sally Tebo Hip your partner Sally Brown Fogel twilling in Morton's Harbor All around the circle Eyes the violet fills the boat Eyes the violet sails her And eyes the violet catches the fish And brings it home to Liza Hip your partner Sally Tebo Hip your partner Sally Brown Fogel twilling in Morton's Harbor All around the circle